you, Glenn, for these lovely words of introduction and these very perceptive comments about why we need to be talking about inclusion. I'm going to offer some thoughts on how we might get inclusion right. And I'm going to start by inviting us collectively to address some of the challenges that we face globally in relation to inclusion. And these challenges are conceptual, they're systemic, and they're also to do with outcomes. So I'll talk about these challenges and I'll share um, the very global nature of these challenges. But it's not all gloom and doom. I want to then turn to how we might get inclusion right with four examples. And these four examples come from governments, through Council of Europe, from schools, with an example from Sweden, from parents, and therein I'll be talking about Kazakhstan, and finally from students, with an example from the UK. Well, it's actually from Scotland, but you can pretend it's part of the UK. Um, and then I'll end with some thoughts on the prospects and possibilities for inclusion. So let me begin with the conceptual challenges. And inclusion was supposed to be this really good idea to take us away from the old notion of integration, which was just getting kids into mainstream schools. Inclusion was to be about doing that, increasing the number of children in mainstream schools, but fundamentally about removing the barriers that exist within the schools. There remains, however, uncertainty about what this means in practice. And in my own research, I've documented endlessly teachers' frustration, confusion, guilt, and exhaustion about how to do this thing called inclusion. <coughs> An additional problem is we've tended to ignore the people who matter in the system, the children and the families who can tell us about the consequences of inclusion and much more of exclusion. In spite of what I've just said about a lack of clarity, young people themselves can be very clear about inclusion. And this was a young person whom I put in front of actually the Scottish ministers. And this young person said, inclusion is about more than being in the same building. It is about being with others, sharing experiences, building lasting friendships, being recognised for making a valued contribution and being missed when you're not there. Inclusion is not an issue of geography. Yes, we need buildings to be made accessible, but change can happen only if people have accessible minds. We need to realise that it's a fundamental right of all children to be educated together. We all need to realise that today's children are tomorrow's future, we need to work in partnership to secure that future. The second set of barriers relate to us being part of a, an education system that insists that everyone does better than everyone else. 
Choice, competition, and individual responsibility, together with the calculative practices of national testing, are the watchwords. And remember, this is global. This is what people are saying across the world. And what it does is it forces what the anthropologist, Madeleine Strafern, has called a tyranny of transparency. When all we worry about is proving rather than improving. So the inspectors come and we have to prove. We have to do what Stephen Ball says, we have to fabricate success. We're not helped by the very fact that governments tend to fund research that will tell us what works rather than help us understand processes. And these challenges have led to not so much inclusion, but what Sammy Tomlinson has called an expanded and expensive <coughs> SEN industry. Sally Tomlinson was writing about this in the 70s um, and in the 80s when I was starting to um, do reading as an undergraduate. And then she started writing about it again. She returned to it in 2012 and said, we're expanding our special needs um, industry and it's irresistible. And we're doing this, she said more recently, because of the resourcing and demands and the fact that most of, um, most of the resourcing systems are located within a child. They're attached to a child. They're occurring, she says, because of an increasing number of parents and teachers, um, parents particularly, seeking a diagnosis for their children, and teachers wanting to demonstrate that a child is sufficiently problematic to warrant extra support or even be removed from their classrooms. And it's occurring, lastly, because there are professionals invested in this. So Sally Tomlinson talked about vested interests. And when we look at what's happened with mental disorder, this is really quite problematic. Again, globally, across the world, we're seeing an exponential growth in the numbers of children being diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In Denmark, and someone has referred to it as a tsunami of diagnosis, with more people pushing for recognition of mental disorder among children rather than and consideration of behavioural challenges. And this figure of 5.29% is growing and growing, and more problematic is the fact that it's particular children who are more likely to be at risk of diagnosis, particular risks being associated with race, social class, and gender. The final set of challenges relate to the support or lack thereof for teachers. The big glosses, the big textbooks tell you about autism. They tell you 20 ways to um, 
deal with challenging behavior. There's a behavior book called Getting the Buggers to Behave, excuse the language. Um, it sells, and it's now into its fifth edition, and it sells like hotcakes um, because it allows people to focus on children's deficits. Inclusion is rarely um, documented and explained in the support available for teachers. Instead, we get ridiculous manuals such as the Index for Inclusion or Pathways to Inclusion. And what it does is reinforce this notion that inclusion is this thing that we're moving towards, Destination 2025 or whatever. And that sign is a gift to me from a PhD student whose thesis I was examining. And she picked me up on my constant iteration of inclusion is not a destination. It's something to be practiced every day. And she said, there it is. It's between business and sports. It's a destination, all right. And so we have, however, some successes. And these are successes which have responded to the challenges of, um, or challenges to inclusion. And the first of these comes from governments, and in fact, Council of Europe, where I had the um, good fortune to be working as an expert advisor. And they gave me these badges, and I walked into the street in Strasbourg and got an ice cream, and someone said, was it an expert to glass, um, But wearing that badge, I had a, a certain um, opportunity. And I was supporting conferences for ministers of education, several high-level forums with um, big and top-level policymakers. And I thought, I'll try and change the conversation here. And in the midst of this, I got a gift from a teacher from Estonia who said, there's your inclusive teacher. Your inclusive teacher is someone who has to tend to all these very different things, people, in her garden. She cannot necessarily know how they will grow, thrive, struggle. So she needs to be ready. So as a teacher, she doesn't have prerequisite skills, she doesn't have set competences, but she has a readiness. She has a, a capacity to look and see what they need and to then deliver them different amounts of light and nutrition and so on. And she's practicing an art there, not a science of teaching. And that picture, with permission from this lovely Estonian teacher, has, has gone on with me, and I even presented it back to ministers who liked it. But then I tried to <coughs> change the conversation by reframing some of the policy questions. And I was guided by a philosopher, actually, Derrida, who says, as soon as we make a decision, that's the moment of madness. 
And it's a moment of madness because it's the moment when we forget the other. And it's usually the disenfranchised other. So Derrida was saying this as an Algerian living in France and saying, when they decide about the majority, they forget me. And he said further that we're faced with, especially in education, a thing called aporias, and that's a Greek word, which simply means two contradictory imperatives. Two things that you have to do, raising attainment, raising achievement, and being inclusive. And he's saying they sit in opposition, and we have to decide. And when we decide, we choose the bigger brother. We choose the raising achievement because the results have to be in, and so on. We still say inclusion is important, but we have to feed our masters. And Derrida explored this by reading um, a Plato story, which was about somebody learning maths, being taught by Socrates, and the somebody got to a point where he was stuck. Is it this or is it that? And he said, it's no use, Socrates. I just don't know. And Derrida thought, maybe that point where you don't know is the moment where justice is. If you're not saying, let's choose the bigger brother, then we can be just. So I've had the nerve to try this out. And this one was in the Ukraine by asking these questions as two-sided, two-handed. So presented them as, how can we do this and this? So two examples there about student learners, student teachers becoming autonomous professionals and collaborating. How might teachers raise achievement and be inclusive? Now, the ministers really got it. They loved it. When we did the formal bit, we had to finish our meetings with this kind of thing. Um, and don't even bother reading that, because it just says blah, 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 blah. And yet it says all the right things. So we got out there. But what changed were the ministers' dialogue? The ministers started to call for shifts away from children's needs to children's rights. They said, we also need to talk about, stop talking about children becoming and think about children being. They took exception to what works and said, can we do what fails? Can we look at you know, where we went wrong, how we can learn from our mistakes? They undertook to promote intercultural dialogue, but they also started talking in this two-handed way. How can we do this and make sure we don't stop doing that? So how can we raise achievement and promote inclusiveness, they said again. Um, but their one, their particular one, and it was Derrida's own one, how can we promote mother tongue languages whilst also ensuring minority ethnic children 
can participate fully in their non-native language. So how do we keep the two things going and remain just? We turn to the second example, which is in Sweden. And this is an example which got rather famous, even beyond Sweden, um, because it, it was a dramatic success story of a school and municipality going from the bottom of the league tables to the top using inclusive education. It was told by the councillors, the um, municipal elected members, you've got to improve, you can't be at the bottom. So it set about trying to, to effect this improvement and practically it removed the special classes, so got rid of them, redistributed the students and the teachers in the ordinary classes. The teachers got a lot of support, some by us. I was working as a visiting professor at the University of Boros, and um, we talked to them, shared papers with them, and heard their concerns about inclusive practice. But what was crucial to us, and we spent a lot of time hearing this from the students, was the success really boiled down to good teachers, good teaching, and absolute care for their success. We spent, as I say, a lot of time talking with the students as they went on, and indeed once they'd moved out of the school and were in secondary schools, upper secondary schools throughout Sweden. And we were asking them about their experience in the school. And they said what was striking was for them was the teachers' absolute confidence in them that they would succeed. They were told, you will, you will pass, you will definitely pass, and we will make sure you you do pass. So they pushed and drove the students every day. They created also an ethos of seeking help. So telling the students to both seek help from the staff and from each other. And the students were very funny about the, the head teacher and the, indeed the teachers who had this motto and together we can be a good school, a great school. And they said it was ringing in our ears because we were hearing it all the time from the head teacher as they walked in every day and from the teachers. So they, the, the students knew that the teachers cared passionately about them succeeding, that they would do everything to make sure they succeeded. And they felt a kind of moral obligation to, to succeed. And they remarked that they were working with teachers who seemed to think it was fun to work. So, you know, what's, what's not to like? And here are some quotes from the students who, by the time we <coughs> spoke to them the second and third time, were beginning to feel a bit surprised and maybe even annoyed at us for asking all this about inclusion. It was a, a kind of Swedish duh um, reaction. 
of course this is a good idea, of course this is the way to, to do it. Um, so one boy says, I've had pretty good discipline in planning and such. The class knows which ones are good, so then you, can then you have to help. Sometimes if I was finished, it was, can you not help me a bit? I always enjoyed it, and it was very fun to do, because you can. One talked of inclusion as a victory against segregation, while another said, the experience I have of people with disabilities is that the worst thing that can happen is you're treated as a restricted person. One should have the same opportunities and values, and the conditions should be the same, and one should have the same platform to stand on. And finally, I think you get an insight into the different difficulties for some and the extra help that some need, and you know how to handle situations in the future. So it was good for the students with special needs, it was good for them, it was good for everyone, and you know, just get off our cases because it was a really good idea. The next, the next example comes from Kazakhstan and was an interesting one. Kazakhstan became a republic independent from the Soviet Union only in 1991 and only ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabled Persons in 2015. So it was going towards <coughs> inclusion and had me in to see um, how well they were doing. And it was so interesting because it, having turned its back on the Soviet Union, still retained a lot of its allegiance, most notably through um, this set of state experts, the PMEC and also through its um, continued influence on defectology. So this PMEC was placing children, and quite often placing children at home. So saying, you cannot come to school, or you should not come to school, because it will be shameful. <coughs> and I spent a lot of time with um, some very, very upset parents who didn't understand the basis for these decisions, also had encountered resistance from parents of non-disabled children to their children being in school. But we found much spirit of activism and much mobilization of parents to start new schools and start NGOs. And there was a particularly successful group called Ashek Alayim, which seemed to, seemed to be getting inclusion right, partly from the professionalism of the leading mothers, also from the father's support, but also almost this unintentional double-handed obligation, focusing on the system and on the individual needs. They also got support from specialists within the state system, and together they were launching public campaigns to change attitudes. And there was a very impressive shift going on um, in attitudes towards disabled people. The final example comes 
from Scotland. And it's an instance of one school in which the head teacher wanted to see how far she could go with the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Now, she tried all sorts of different things that didn't work. Pupil councils, pupil assemblies, which they were told of their rights. And it didn't work because the basic power um, elements didn't change. So she had this idea to set up the special needs observation group. Um, and that's actually a little bit of a joke, maybe a Scottish joke. Um, snog is a kind of rude kissing. Um, and the children had t-shirts with lips on them, um, which their parents weren't very happy about. But um, they were the snog group, and they went about identifying barriers to inclusion in the school. Now, that was brilliant in itself, because they said, it's not interesting what's wrong with a person. What is interesting is why that desk is of the wrong height for this person to, to sit and participate. So, you know, they got the social model of disability right away. But what was striking um, for us was was one particular boy for whom this group turned his life around, literally. And I still get goosebumps when I um, think about this. But the group itself, and I'll come back to Alistair in a moment, the group itself began with the inclusion of disabled children and then said, right, <laughs> now we're going to look at asylum seekers and we're going to look at other groups. And children who feel uncomfortable getting changed if they're a little bit overweight. We want everyone to feel able to participate. So, you know, they were, they were away with it. But Alistair, when I met him, said, in response to my question, what will you do when you, you know, get older, leave school? I said, it doesn't matter, I'll, I might be dead. Um, he was constantly being excluded from school and he thought he would end up permanently excluded and not able to return to school, thought he might end up with drugs. And you know, this is a 12-year-old heartbreakingly saying, I don't see any future. I didn't see any future for myself. As he got involved in snog, um, he started to change. He started to change by taking care of other people. And he started to see himself as responsible. So he's saying, I used to be really bad. You have to forgive the, the likes, because they're kind of punctuation marks in Scottish speak. Um, I used to be really bad. I used to fight everybody. But I've now calmed down, because I've got a responsibility to look after them, disabled people. So say more about that. Well, I start, when I started to know them, I was like, I need to show them I want to be good because I used to get into fights and stupid things like that. But when I started to get to know them and got into the snog group, I started my behaviour. I wanted to start again and be good. Is that right? Yeah, because I didn't want everybody to know me as Alistair the bad boy. I want to be good now. So that's what I was trying to do when I went into the snog group. Innocent question, whilst knowing the story, 
the background. So before you used to get into lots of fights. Now I get into them not that much, but sometimes I'm amazing. That's the bit that gives me goosebumps. And no one thinks that I used to fight in that, but I just kick it off again. I just want to be good, but I can't sometimes. I think I've really improved my behavior. I used to be really bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm quite good now. And he went on to say what the point of this group was, and again, what inclusion is. I think everyone that's got a disability feels better when you treat them the same. I think that's how they feel. They just like to get on with their life because they don't like being felt sorry for. Just because they have disabilities doesn't mean they should be treated differently. That's what the group's all about, to make sure people don't treat each other differently because they look different. So that's what we've been doing. <laughs> and so finally, well, not quite finally, because there's a last word from someone else. But what are the prospects and possibilities for inclusion? I think they're good, but only if we do these things. If we address the competing policy demands and help people around us to think about these two sets of obligations. We need to learn from children and families about their experience of inclusion and exclusion. We need teacher education and CPD that helps teachers to understand and engage with inclusion and diversity and to see it as exciting. We need to draw effectively on teachers and other stakeholders' commitment to creating an inclusive environments. And finally, we need research on inclusion and diversity that focuses on what makes a difference. And I want to end with some words from some disabled people, um, Norman Cook and Emma Vandercliffe. And they're offering guidance in the form of a cradle for support. And I'm apologising for insisting on reading this, um, but I think it, it has to be um, heard aloud. But it's called A Cradle for Support. Throughout history, people with physical and mental disabilities have been abandoned at birth, banished from society, used as court jesters, drowned and burned during the Inquisition, gassed in Nazi Germany, and still continue to be segregated, institutionalized, tortured in the name of behavior management, abused, raped, euthanized, and murdered. Now, for the first time, people with disabilities are taking their rightful place as fully contributing citizens. The danger is that we will respond with remediation and benevolence rather than equity and respect. And so we offer you a cradle for support. Do not see my disability as the problem. Recognize that my disability is an attribute. Do not see my disability as a deficit. It is you who see me as deviant and helpless. Do not try to fix me because I am not broken. Support me 
I can make my contribution to the community on my own. Do not see me as your client. I am your fellow citizen. See me as your neighbor. Remember, none of us can be self-sufficient. Do not try to modify my behavior. Be still and listen. What you define as inappropriate may be my attempt to communicate with you in the only way I can. Do not try to change me. You have no right. Help me learn what I want to know. Do not hide your uncertainty behind professional distance. Be a person who listens and does not take my struggles away from me by trying to make it all better. Do not use theories and strategies on me. Be with me. And when we struggle with each other, let that give rise to self-reflection. Do not try to control me. I have a right to my power as a person. What you call non-compliance or manipulation may actually be the only way I can exert some control over my life. Do not treat me to be obedient, submissive, and polite. I need to feel entitled to say no if I'm to protect myself. Do not be charitable towards me. The last thing the world needs is another Jerry Lewis. Be my ally against those who exploit me for their own gratification. Do not try to be my friend. I deserve more than that. Get to know me. We may become friends. Do not help me, even if it does make you feel good. Ask me if I need your help. Let me show you how you can best assist me. Do not admire me. A desire to live a full life does not warrant adoration. Respect me, for respect presumes equity. <coughs> Do not tell, correct, and lead. Listen, support, and follow. Do not work on me. Work with me. 